Ready to unwrap a surprise from Consumer Cellular? Experience the gift of freedom with no contract, no hidden fees, and always free activation. Here comes the holiday surprise. From now till December 31st, new customers can enjoy their second month for free. To get this holiday offer, visit ConsumerCellular.com or call 1-888-FREEDOM and use promo code PODCAST. Act before December 31st to get your second month on us. Use promo code PODCAST. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military and the other 99 percent of us we owe them online at americanveteranshow.com here's stephan tubbs welcome to this week's edition of the american veteran show thank you so much as always for your time here on 710 us as we are into our sixth season who would have thought years ago that we would be in this position as we continue week after week after week now, unfortunately, focusing on what is going on in Ukraine. As of our record time, we will give you the very latest. We'll take you to the White House from just a couple of days ago. And the late word that now, as Russia escalates the war, concerns are growing about the Kremlin's possible use of chemical weapons. We could not do this program without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson and his team of lawyers, Online, it's bosonlaw.com, B-O-E-S-E-N, bosonlaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans and their issues every single day. Their number, 303-999-9999. As of our record time, giving you the very latest from Friday at the White House. Just spoken for some time with President Zelensky of Ukraine. I told him, as I have each and every time we've spoken, the United States stands with the people of Ukraine. And they're bravely, as they bravely fight to defend their country. And they are doing that. And as Putin continues his merciless assault, the United States and our allies and partners continue to work in lockstep to ramp up the economic pressures on Putin and to further isolate Russia and the global stage. Later today, together with other NATO allies in the G7, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, United Kingdom, as well as the European Union, we're going to jointly announce several new steps to squeeze Putin and hold him more, even more accountable for his aggression against Ukraine. And I want to speak to a few of those points today. First, each of our nations is going to take steps to deny most favored nation status to Russia. A most favored nation status designation means two countries have agreed to trade with each other under the best possible terms. Low tariffs, few barriers of trade, and the highest possible imports allowed. In the United States, we call this permanent normal trade relations, PNTR, but it's the same thing. Revoking PNTR for Russia is going to make it harder for Russia to do business with the United States. And doing it in unison with other nations to make up half of the global economy will be another crushing blow 
to the Russian economy. From the White House last Friday, talking about most favored nation status. And then at the very end, as things wrapped up, before the president walked away from the podium. Russia may use chemical weapons or create a false flag operation to use them. What evidence have you seen showing that? And would the U.S. have a military response if Putin does launch a chemical weapons attack? I'm not going to speak about the intelligence, but but, uh, Russia would pay a severe price if they use chemical weapons. A severe price. The president, as he walked away from the podium this past Friday. This past week, the unthinkable, unless you're at war, And you don't mind civilian consequences, casualties of war. This past week, the bombing of a maternity ward. Here's how the breaking news sounded on the BBC. I read the latest line from the governor of Ukraine's Donetsk region saying the Russian airstrike on this hospital in Mariupol had happened during an agreed ceasefire period. Those uh, humanitarian corridors, the ceasefires that had been negotiated in six different areas. And, of course, Mariupol was supposed to be one of those areas. But uh, you see in these pictures the huge crater in the middle of the buildings. And as the cameras... From the BBC to inside... This maternity ward, blown to bits. Searching through the rubble for possibly any survivors. Meantime, outside, a parking lot, courtyard area, completely demolished. A huge crater. Still hard to get an official toll as to how many people were injured and killed, but at least a few were killed, and at least 17 were injured. But the atrocities over this past week did not stop there. Last weekend, after this show had been put to bed, as we call it in the business, a New York Times journalist captured the unthinkable. Little children pulling suitcases on wheels and then a rocket attack. And while that atrocity was going on in Mariupol, in Ukraine, at the Vatican the very same day. In Ukraine, scorrono fiumi di sangue e di lacrime. Pope Francis praying, urging peace in the region. And unfortunately, those prayers have yet to be answered. Last Sunday night on CBS's 60 Minutes, more on the refugees, now totaling more than 2.5 million in a little more than three weeks of war. After 450 miles of war, something that looked like hope 
shined atop an old engine, pulling families across the new border of the free world. This is the main Polish station where five to ten trains a day escape the war. On each, 2,000 women and children are compressed into standing room only. Before the doors can open, they reach for water lifted to the windows. This train fled the Russian army closing in on the southern port city of Odessa. After a day and a night fearing that the train would be attacked, they descended into safety on platform number four. Overcome with gratitude, Alessa told us this is our first time in Poland. Scott Pelley reporting from the Ukraine-Poland border. And as we wrap up this first segment, we've got three more great segments ahead, and we celebrate International Women's Day to wrap things up. It was last Saturday, so eight days ago, that the entertainer, the amazing frontman of the police, Sting, decided to take to social media and unfortunately do a reprise of a song that haunted me as a child in the 1980s. Stay with us. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. I've only rarely sung this song in the many years since it was written because I never thought it would be relevant again. But in the light of one man's bloody and woefully misguided decision to invade a peaceful, unthreatening neighbor, the song is once again a plea for our common humanity. For the brave Ukrainians fighting against this brutal tyranny and also the many Russians who are protesting this outrage despite the threat of arrest and imprisonment. We all of us love our children. Stop the war. In Europe and America There's a growing feeling of hysteria Conditioned to respond to all the threats And the rhetorical speeches of the Soviet Mr. Khrushchev said we will bury you I don't subscribe to this point of view Be such an ignorant thing to do If the Russians love their children too How can I save my little boy From Oppenheimer's deadly Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stephan Tubbs. John Spencer joined us on the regular program last week. He is the chair of Urban Warfare Studies with the Madison Policy Forum. He's also United States Army Major, retired. His newest book is Connected Soldiers. You can find that on Amazon. The great thing about uh, the major who joined us I had seen him on a national television program not within the last week or so, and lo and behold, he's based in Colorado Springs. We got his perspective on the pure hell that has been going on now into its third week in Ukraine. Yeah, sir. I served 25 years in the, in the U.S. Army as a soldier. I, I was an infantryman. I spent two combat deployments. I was a part of the invasion into Iraq and um, moved south to take down Baghdad. I went back later in 2008, uh, right at the height of the surge and the insurgency in Iraq as part of the Battle of Sadr City. 
I went into basically studying urban warfare well over 10 years ago while I was still in the Army um, for the Pentagon. Then I moved to West Point. I was teaching strategy uh, and helped stand up the Modern War Institute. I'm now with the Madison Policy Forum where I've been writing books and articles and all that about urban warfare. I, I really came to the attention of this war as I, I saw what was happening and saw the civilians being armed. And I know we'll talk about it. So I started tweeting mm-hmm. from Twitter um, about what I would do just as a person who's been there, studied this uh, in Ukraine. And that's really got me to today. I don't know if you agree with this or not, and, and certainly if you disagree, that is completely fine. We're a talk show. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to nitpick here that, that yes, well, the president did say that we're not going to take any more oil from Russia. I don't know why this didn't happen two weeks ago. I don't know why the sanctions weren't tougher, say, two, three weeks ago. What is your take on that, and, and do you think that, that this uh, action today by the president will make a difference? So... You know, just speaking as a person, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm one of the world's leading urban warfare guys. So that's that's my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the politics of this is geopolitics. So there's so many complexities to what 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 can be done to Russia as as the you know a huge provider of oil to not us. We could live without his oil, right? But to Europe, um, so the, there's so many second, third order effects that I know at that level is being considered. Like, there's lots of things we want them to do and, and that I want our government to do. Um, but I understand, as a non NATO country in Ukraine, why it's taken us so long to get to here. Mm-hmm. Um, but every day I'm, I'm, I see things happening that, I, that, that are the right thing. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I want to, you know, speaking of urban warfare, and I'm not trying to be gratuitous with. With this sound, I did play it yesterday, but I know you're familiar with the video that came from, a, I believe, a New York Times journalist over the weekend. And you see uh, someone who appears to be perhaps a Ukrainian soldier, and he's moving what appear to be like almost metal barricades. And, and in the end, there's a rocket strike right as a family with, with uh, and little kids with suitcases in tow. Um, they unfortunately are killed. Here's how it sounds, and I don't play this to be, again, gratuitous because we played it yesterday, but I think this will set us up to talk about some of your expertise in urban warfare. This is how it sounded this past weekend. You hear them screaming for medics. You hear the dogs barking. This is obviously uh, not a, a military installation. These, these uh, John, were, were people. And I guess I just ask you because a lot of Russian apologists over the last week or so have said, well, these types of things, if they are happening, these are accidents. Is what we just heard in your estimation an accident? Absolutely not. Th- that was done on purpose. Um, 
there, there's a reason why militaries don't want to fight in urban because of this intermixing of civilians or what we call combatants and non-combatants. Clearly, the, the guy with the yellow armband carrying a weapon is a, it's a combatant. It's an enemy target. But even if that was true, and that's what Russia would try to argue, that's what they were targeting, and there may be something off-camera they're targeting, there's also requirements under the law of war to protect civilians. So even if you're going to strike a building that is an enemy building inside of urban terrain, there's all kinds of rules and requirements that you've done everything possible to prevent civilian harm. And striking a guy in the middle of the street right next to a civilian evacuees, in my opinion, um, is purposely wrong. Uh, and, I, and I'm so uh, happy that the International Criminal Court is moving at a record pace and not a fast organization. And unlike, I think, past wars, that video will be investigated hmm. for a war crime against Russia. Hmm. Our guest is retired U.S. Army Major and uh, Coloradan right here, uh, John Spencer, and he is the Chief of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute and an impeccable military career. We heard a little bit of his resume. Uh, I know this is the first time we've spoken. I do a program here called The American Veteran Show. We're in our sixth season. Every Sunday at noon we do this. Uh, I've been embedded twice in Iraq, uh, maybe even you know at the same time you were in country. Uh, and I'm I'm a lowly civilian, but I'm curious and I I'm a storyteller and I also am a realist and I want to play. And I, I love this country more than than anyone can imagine. And I'm sure sir, just like you. I want to play devil's advocate. You know, I heard what you just said and, and I agree. But then you look playing devil's advocate. Good Lord. We did this in Iraq and Afghanistan for nearly 20 years where there was that, quote, collateral damage and that's i'm hearing a lot from people that may say i'm too harsh on putin which i find is a joke to be honest but you know we've been engaged in this stuff as well and are we being hypocritical if like now when you see those three with suitcases in tow get killed didn't we do almost the same thing in iraq and afghanistan absolutely not um as somebody who fought in those wars and have had made that decision to pull that trigger mm -hmm. Um, I'm telling you, Good. the U.S. would never have pulled that trigger with those civilians. Now, did we make mistakes? Absolutely. Okay. Certainly, um, you know, a sniper on top of a building dropped the building. There's 100 civilians. That happened in the Battle of Mosul in 2016. That was us. We did that. We, um, but we had made – there's so many protocols that we do. We would not have pulled that trigger, okay. I guarantee you. That is very good to hear. I'm very glad. And again, I am as pro-military as anybody in the United States of America with a with a microphone in front of him. And I, I'm glad that we could uh, clear that up. What are we looking at as far as more urban warfare? Are you fairly convinced, if not uh, totally convinced, that this is going to get much, much worse in these urban centers? There's only one reason that Putin is in Ukraine. It's only one objective. If we call it the strategic objective. And that's to take Kiev, remove the government, and put it in their own. So there's nothing that isn't urban about that. Now, there's supporting, as you know, there's all kinds of supporting operations that need to happen to make that. But this is all about the battle of Kiev that has already begun. Uh, so I think he's doing it, one, um, to scare the civilian population and the government into submission. So you bomb it, uh, they get terrified that more bombs are coming. It's, you know, it's, 
I've been on the receiving end of mortars and artillery, even as a hardened soldier. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. Right. Because you don't know when the next one's coming. From our regular program last week, a terrific guest, uh, now a friend of the program, both the regular program and the American Veteran Show. Thanks again to John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies with the Madison Policy Forum, former U.S. Army Major, retired. You can find out more about his new book as well, Connected Soldiers, on Amazon. When we come back, another guest we had not too many days ago on the regular program, longtime Colorado sports journalist and such a successful author of seven books, more in the works. His name is Terry Fry. I've known him and known of him and read his byline for many, many years. But we had him on to talk about his World War II father, an amazing story. And that comes up next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephen Tubbs. Sure glad you're with us on the American Veteran Show. And I gotta I gotta give a shout out to our producer Matt Steinkruger. We have worked so hard, especially over the better part of a month now, trying our best to give you a review of all the sounds and the interviews and the sound bites as the war in Ukraine rages on. So we appreciate you. Our hard work is totally worth it if you are able to listen and and if you follow us on social media, great, at AmVet Show on Facebook and Twitter. And may cooler heads prevail. But unfortunately, now into its third week, the war is just so deadly and so devastating for so many millions of people. All right, let's switch gears from last week on our regular program as well. Had a chance to have Terry Fry in studio with us. Terry has an affinity for World War II veterans, just like we all do on this program. But there's a very personal reason why. You see, Terry Fry's father was a World War II pilot. Terry Fry was raised in, uh, was raised in agricultural Wisconsin and graduated from Stoughton High School. They lost the, they lost the farm during the Depression. And he had ended up moving to the big city of Stoughton. And my dad went to Stoughton High School, met, met and married my mom later. They were both from Stoughton, Wisconsin, which is a Norwegian immigrants community. And I will, here's one aside. Uh, a few years ago, they, they uh, inducted my father into the Stoughton Hall of Fame. And it's a Norwegian immigrants community where they have sitting in Maya's, the big parade, and all that. And my mom was... God, I hope they don't find out he wasn't Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> did they ever? Uh, yes, they did. Oh, okay. But he, so he was a star athlete at Stoughton High School, went a short distance away to Madison to play football for the Wisconsin Badgers. The head football coach was Harry Stuldreyer, the quarterback for the Notre Dame uh, Four Horsemen. And freshmen were not eligible. So in ni- 1942... My father was a sophomore on the 1942 Wisconsin Badgers football team, and they were uh, among the best teams in the country. Uh, the, the, uh, they had Crazy Legs Hirsch, who was standing next to my father in the team picture, Jeez. if you ever look. Uh, they had Crazy Legs Hirsch, who was a sophomore also. Uh, the big star was Dave Schreiner, a two-time, two-time All-American end in the Big Ten MVP, and Pat Harder, who was also a, a NFL star. So the, the, it was a great team. 
They went 8-1-1 one, one in 1942. They beat Ohio State 17-7. to seven. They tied Notre Dame. And then when the drunken sports writers got to vote for the AP number one team at the end of the year. So let's see. Ohio State and Wisconsin both lost one game. Wisconsin won the head-to-head game. So who should be number one in the country? Wisconsin, of course, except the drunken sports writers voted Ohio State. Oh, those drunken sports writers. Paul Brown was the coach. And so that was the first year, my dad's sophomore year at Wisconsin. Well, in 1942, the atmosphere was of of a final fling on campus. Everybody on campus knew they were going to get involved soon. Uh, Most of them and the players all on the team had enrolled in the enlisted reserve corps, various branches of the service. My dad had 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 jumped into the Army Air Corps or Army Air Forces. People argue, which is it was Air Corps then. So he he was among maybe the ten to fifteen players on the team who were in that. Many of them were in the Marines. Many of them were uh, in the Navy. They were just getting ready to serve, getting ready to be called. And so they had that great, 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 great season. The 1942, the 1943 season, that, the season after that, everybody was gone. Everybody was gone. And so they all went off to the war. Uh, and my father had that team picture, that 1942 team picture on the wall. And he told me some things about some of the men on the team. Two of them had been killed in the Battle of Okinawa, including Dave Schreiner. And when my father p- passed, I did a story on my father for the Denver Post uh, as kind of a Veterans Day salute in late in, in 2000. And he told me a lot of the things about guys on that team. He was pointing to the picture on the wall. When my dad passed away, and my dad passed away, I looked at that team picture and I said, "Everybody in that picture's got a story." So I set out to tell it. So I ended up finding out as much as I possibly could about that nineteen crazy or about that nineteen forty two season when they all knew this was a final fling. And I wrote about that season, that time on the Wisconsin campus, knowing that I could have put my finger on a picture on the wall or a map on the wall and written about the closest football team to it. That's what it was. And so uh, then my dad went into it at early 1943 when he was still 18 years old. He was early gra- high school graduate. He he went into the, uh, went into the Army Air Corps, Army Air Forces, and, and was eventually... He trained in Lahana, among other places. No except, kidding. Except he always said Lajanta. <laughs> <laughs> we forgive him. Yeah. But so he he was uh, trained in the P thirty eight fighter plane, the uh, unarmed the unarmed version of it to go in to take pictures in advance of bombing runs alone over the Japanese targets. And he gets in at eighteen. He got in at eighteen. He ended up flying. He ended up flying sixty seven missions in the Pacific. 67 missions, over 300 combat hours at, at age 19, 20, and 21. Unbelievable. And so uh, that was, he had finally told me about that. I finally had, I finally had the, the intelligence or, to actually ask, say, say, sit down, let's talk about this. And so after he did, after he passed away, uh, they had his players, he had, they had a memorial service here in Denver. They had a memorial, which was attended by many football glitterati. And they had a memorial service with his players in Eugene at, at Austin Stadium, run by Dan Fouts and Bob Newland and several of his players. And they came they came up to me. But Dan Fouts came up to me at the service in Eugene, and he said there were clips there about what I had written about him for, for the Denver Post that one time when I finally got around to writing about it for Veterans Day. 
And Dan says, he never told us about that. And so he was very low-key about it, never told anybody about it. And Channel, uh, Brian, we, you, you had Brian Olson on. Mm-hmm. Brian Olson and, uh, and his brother Blake. I mean, Blake, and, Blake Olson and his brother Brian mm-hmm. uh, had done a story on my dad for uh, Channel 9 Broncos Tonight. And I was ashamed when I heard him talk to Blake and Brian about, they say I was unarmed. In my plane, flying in alone over those stars. Well, I had a pistol. <laughs> yeah. He says, and I don't know. I know I couldn't hurt anybody with it. Let me ask you, you know, between us, we have probably interviewed hundreds of, and hundreds of veterans. And I always find it interesting when me, as a complete stranger, goes into uh, a situation where you do the interview and then the family will take you aside and say, he never talked about that. <laughs> but for you, how different? Because you, as a journalist, are now trying to, I don't want to say pry, but you're trying to get information. It's not just any veteran. This is your dad. When did he decide to open up? And do you think he opened up to you 100%? I th- I think he came pretty darn close. It was very late, and I think he realized where I was coming from. And that it was time to talk. Why do you think, and I know there are very obvious answers, but maybe specifically for your dad, why do you think you spent more than likely the majority of your first half of your life that you didn't know these stories? You think back about it. We were just ignorant and lazy and intellectually deficient. Yeah, but they didn't probably mind that. Yeah. They didn't have to go back to those memories. My dad had also coached high school football in, in, in Portland. It was his first job, and they had won the state championship. And I went to the reunion when I was working in Portland. And he, I, after, after the reunion, I said, said did, did, did these guys, the younger guys, did they talk to you about your World War II experiences, the younger guys at Grant High School in Portland? He, he said, no, we really didn't. And he says, well, I said, well, why didn't you guys ever talk about it? He says, because everybody had done it. Yeah. That's Isn't that the, true? Yeah. You he know, said like, everybody had done it. it you, you just didn't even think about saying, oh, by the way, I, I flew 67 P-38 missions. 300 combat hours is what you said. Yeah. That's just There's a picture in the book, actually, of his final mission, of him flying his, of him flying his plane on his final mission. Two of them went on the mission, and his buddy took it, knew, knowing that he was about to... Uh, Knowing that he was about to finish his tour, is. tour of duty. There's his, this is his final mission. That's him in that plane. Longtime Colorado sports journalist and author Terry Fry on the American Veteran Show. We'll wrap up this Sunday's program coming up next. Stay with us. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Sadly, the soundtrack of Ukraine, and it continues. As we wrap up this week's edition of the American Veteran Show, be sure to join us tomorrow on our regular program, Monday through Friday, 710 KNUS in Denver, 3 to 7 p.m., Mountain Time, as we'll bring you the very latest with our guests and so much more. We do want to pause and recognize and salute especially 
the females of the United States military. This past week was International Women's Day. We'll get a little bit from our friends across the pond in Britain also. But first, let's hear it for those Marine women. So I first enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1985. Um, I came in and my recruiter he said he was going to put me in an MOS that was not traditionally for women. You know, 1985, that was a ground support equipment mechanic. You know, it was not a traditional MOS for us. So that's how I started out, uh, worked in a headquarters and maintenance squadron. And now I'm the director of Ledge Affairs here in headquarters of Marine Corps, uh, providing liaison over to Capitol Hill and the Congress on behalf of the Commandant. I remember when I was in boot camp, um, we were right about to uh, go on the grinder to, for practice for uh, graduation. And my drill instructor said, look over, look over there. And we saw uh, another drill instructor and she had the NCO sword and she was wearing it. And, you know, we were recruits. We didn't know what was going on. We were like, what? and they're like, they let her wear the sword. And it was 1985 that uh, women first were allowed to start wearing the sword. And uh, I remember our drill instructors came to the squad bay and they had this announcement that Gale Reels had been selected by a promotion board to be a brigadier general. And quite frankly, the recruits, we didn't quite understand the magnitude of it. We didn't understand that this was the first time that a woman had been selected by a promotion board to be a brigadier general. So quite frankly, during my career, I'd always thought it was possible for a woman to be a general. It was just um, the, the way it was in the Marine Corps that women could aspire to that. Um, Obviously, the women who had gone before me didn't have that familiarity, didn't have that history to inform, you know, their future possibilities. So I would just say from the very first time when I was at boot camp, as we marked some of these milestones, it just starts opening more and more possibilities of what women contribute to the United States Marine Corps and who we are. I look back at... Um, you know, some of the folks who have gone before us, but like Barbara Dulinski, she was one of the first women Marines who ever deployed to a combat zone. 1967 in Vietnam. You know, imagine getting off that plane just south of Saigon and trying to figure it out, all that great uncertainty. But just like I experienced in boot camp or in my deployments, when she got off that aircraft, she was going to be part of a team. And that's how we all become successful is when we're part of a team, I think. I just look back even at Marine Corps aviation. We all know who A.A. A. Cunningham is. We should all know who Frank Peterson is. We should know who Sarah Deal is. We should know who Nicole Mann is. You know, as students of history, when we collectively understand all of these histories, we better appreciate the legacy that's been passed on to us. I think times like this in Women's History Month, we will look back at our history and we'll look back at our different milestones and how things have changed over time. One of the other things we have to look at are the constants. That were the same when I joined the Marine Corps in 1985 and they're just as the same as I'm sure there's recruits arriving at MCRD San Diego and MCRD Paris Island today, that you will be challenged. If you want to be a Marine, we're going to hold you to a high standard. But the good news is we're going to surround you with a team that's going to help set conditions for success. And we're going to help you make those standards. We're going to help, help you achieve those standards, and we're going to do it as a team. That's remained constant throughout the history of the Marine Corps. Just the one 
Just one of the incredible stories, female leaders in the United States Marine Corps. And because I think we need national patriotism more than ever, ladies and gentlemen, sing it if you know it. Don't you feel better after that? I sure do. And finally, in recognition of this past week, International Women's Day, we go from the United States across to Great Britain. This International Women's Day, I'm really proud to be deployed on Op Newcomb in Mali on Roto 3. Uh, I'm an operating department practitioner, and while I'm out here, when I'm not doing that, I'm driving one of these. So the GMSG, the Ground Maneuver Surgical Group, is a very small hospital. We operate out of one tent. We travel forwards with uh, the task group so that we can get emergency surgery to a a casualty. So we've got uh, set-ups, cameras that come over the surgical table. So that's very innovative and, like, new in. Um, It's called Proxmi, uh, and it's basically posh FaceTime for surgeons. They can speak to surgeons back in the UK live and get opinions back and forth. The 17 of us. Because it's such a small team, we need to have drivers from within the team. This is sort of up and coming towards the way the army's moving, thinking about manoeuvrability and, and medicine, like trying to condense things, trying to get things as high tech as, as manoeuvrable and get that medicine like right up there at the forefront of things. So one of the UN's uh, focuses is on women, peace and security. The task group were asked to try to ensure that they had a significant female engagement as part of that. Now MED, we're very lucky. Actually, just naturally, we're quite heavy uh, with um, women as part of our um, medical team. Um, and so whilst we were out on the last patrol, actually in some of the stop shots, we were able to go and have a conversation with some of the women that approached the Liga, just in general, about their living conditions, how they got on, how they worked, what would um, improve their security situation, what would improve their business opportunities so we can feed that information back into the UN and help um, enable women to prosper in Mali. As we recognize and commemorate as we wrap up the show this week, International Women's Day, ladies, women, thank you for everything you do, especially those so few that have decided to serve in their particular country and especially here in the great United States. We'll have much more tomorrow on the regular program when it comes to Ukraine And we will leave you with the, to me, incredible government-private partnership with the SpaceX program this past week of Falcon 9 taking off from Florida, distributing another 46 
Starlink satellites. I'm Stefan Tubbs. Have a terrific week ahead. For producer Matt Steinkruger, we encourage you, pray for Ukraine, and remember our troops. Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Engine full power. And liftoff, Falcon 9, 7, 4, 10. Falcon 9 has successfully lifted off from Space Launch Complex 40 at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station, carrying our stack of 48 Starlink satellites to low Earth orbit. Moments ago, we throttled the 9M1D engines down, reducing the speed by decreasing the flow. The American Veterans Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veterans Show. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.